Ranked choice voting works. It costs less than holding runoff elections. And studies show it's popular with voters and reduces negative attacks. That's why cities and states are looking to ranked choice voting to improve their elections. Would ranked choice voting help in your community? Find out more at fairvote.org. Waymo TV is filmed for a live studio audience being held against their will. Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of Waywo.tv. Today on the show we have Paris Marks. We're talking driverless cars, Elon Musk, Tesla, Uber, the future of technology, everything in between. We also have the Carolina Beepers. It's a Justin Bieber cover band. Let's meet up with BJ Mendelson, you know, in the George Carlin podcast studio. Let's just get on to the business. So Paris, I, I would. There's so many questions I have for you, but first, just would you be willing to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do on a high level? Certainly, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I uh, host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us that looks critically at the tech industry. Um, I also write a lot about the tech industry for a, a whole variety of publications uh, from like your big, you know, major national, international publications to, you know, your your left wing publications as well. Um, and I'm also the author of Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, which came out very recently. Yeah. And so we're going to dive into the book in just a moment, but I'd love to talk a little bit about the podcast because I... I wrote Social Media is Bullshit back in 2012, and at the time, mm -hmm. the, the, there wasn't a lot of people saying what you say in the podcast every day, and I'm very yeah. happy and thankful that it, that it exists. So, <laughs> Thank you. Could, could you could you tell us just um, what is something that why is why what is a good reason for someone to listen? What is what is it that they're going to get out of each episode of Tech One Save Us? Yeah, you know, the goal of the show is really to present a critical. Yeah, I guess critical insights on the tech industry and the impacts that technology has in the world around us, right? And, you know, I think you could very much see it as a response to, you know, kind of, I guess kind of the general ideas and narratives that we have about the tech industry, about how this is naturally like a form of progress, how just because new technology is invented, it's naturally better for society and things like that. And I think that, you know, not only can you see, as you're talking about, if you look back, even in the period where there was uh, a lot of hype and not so much criticism, um, that you could still identify a lot of problems in that moment. But in particular, you know, around 2015, 2016, I feel like we started to have a bit of like a reckoning with um, the tech industry, with those narratives around um, Silicon Valley. Uh, and so, you know, the the podcast is very much kind of in that vein. It's very much saying like, look, technology isn't totally evil, but we need to be able to like look at technology in a nuanced way to recognize that it always isn't always like... Um, you know, a positive thing isn't always making the world a better place. And if we do actually want a better world, we need to recognize when technology is in service of that and when it's not. Yeah. And what's, I mean, there's a lot of different topics that you touch on within the podcast, but is there something that you would say is your, is your favorite go-to topic that, that you enjoy talking about the most? That's a really good question, actually. Um, there are so many, like <laughs> the podcast does cover a whole wide range. I would say like for me personally, though, like, you know, workers' issues, talking about Elon Musk, love all that stuff. But one of the, the subjects, I guess, that I'm really interested in and have been interested in, in a while or for a while is um, the streaming services, what they're doing to the film industry, the television industry, the impact that those kind of 
broader, you know, political, economic, structural changes in the industry have on on workers and the kinds of um, film and television that gets produced. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's something that I've had a number of episodes on, had a number of guests on to talk about, but it is something I'd like to explore further in the future as well. Yeah, I hope you do. I, I think that Netflix has had like a reality warping effect uh, on the way that TV is produced and not yeah. in a good way. And so... Yeah. I, the ramifications of that are far beyond the time that we have to talk about <laughs> totally. uh, with you. So let me let me just switch gears to the book because I'm I'm halfway through it. So just my background, you know, I've, I've read the book by Hod Lipson called Driverless. You know, I, I worked at a at a site called Driverless. I took the name of the book. <laughs> that wasn't my decision. Uh, that dealt with like driverless technology and some of the issues and challenges. So, but I'm curious what brought you to the topic of mobility and transportation and what what led yeah, to the you know, of the book. I, I think it's like a kind of a long story in a sense like you know it's it's an interest that built up over time right you know coming from a place that's very car dependent um being able to visit and experience a lot of places that were not and where things work differently and being like wow this is actually great not having to be dependent on a car all the time um you know then i started to write about those issues as a freelance writer in 2016 um i did a masters uh in in urban geography looking at tech and transportation in 2018 um and then you know after that was done, after, you know, spending two years writing a, a master's thesis on the topic, I was like, you know, uh, you know, there have obviously been books about Uber specifically, about Tesla specifically, like really great ones like Super Pumped and Ed Niedermeyer's Ludicrous on Tesla, like, you know, those sorts of books. But I was like, I don't feel like there's kind of like a book that's kind of bringing all these these ideas and these like uh, ideas for the future of transportation together, um, and and you know maybe my book, maybe my research could could do that, and so that was kind of where the book kind of started off, and then you know after some discussions um, with my with my editor and just thinking about how to frame it, it became clear that it shouldn't just be about like the past ten years or so and what has happened in that period, but should really pull in more historical detail to kind of flesh out a broader image of what's going on here and why it's happening. Yeah, you did a masterful job of that. Like the the first Thank half you. of the book, where you're where you're explaining that the the, the car companies shaped intentionally the, the road system through marketing, through propaganda, through you know the World's Fair. I, I thought it was just really well done. Uh, tell me what what, did, what surprised you the most from that period that that you learned in putting the book together. I, I would say probably like the opposition to the automobile. It wasn't something that I expected like when I started to look into that history. You know, obviously I knew that the automobile arrived, that, that cities weren't like that before the automobile, but I didn't realize the degree to which people at the time, you know, didn't didn't go for this idea basically pushed back yeah. against it right it, it was not clear that this had to be the future but rather there were a concerted kind of group of interest the auto companies the oil companies the suppliers to the auto companies and a whole other range you know as the the, the automobile was more entrenched and became more common and there were more interests dependent on it to push this future for you know the transportation system for our cities more broadly because that required a whole reconstruction of the way that you know cities are designed are planned are built um and you know then to see that people at the time you know saw that people were dying as a result of the automobile being rolled out and actually created groups to push back against that you know held demonstrations held funeral parades rang the bells in churches and fire halls to draw attention to the fact that people were dying um you know, ch children and young women were being disproportionately killed by these vehicle incidents, by these deaths. Um, 
and you know even like drawing up really kind of um emotional propaganda referring to the automobile as the modern moloch or um you know there's this poster that always sticks with me of like a young girl like tugging at her mom's skirt being like when's daddy coming home but daddy isn't coming home because he's been killed by an automobile right um <laughs> and like you can just see how they were able to kind of pull on people's heartstrings to to draw attention to the fact that this automobile was having these negative problems and i think that was easier to do at the time because it was a luxury product and not a mass product as it is now so it wasn't normalized in the same way and it was really disrupting existing norms and so i would say that's the piece that really stood out about me because you know especially in this moment where it has been normalized we can look back and say oh you know like this is the way things are this is the way things have been for for decades like you know we just use automobiles to get around especially here in north america um like why would things be any other way right and then going back to those early periods you really see you know things did work differently and people weren't just automatically accepting of this when it came around and so you know, I think it, it does help people or at least helps me to also kind of reassess the normalization of the automobile. Right. You have a great statistic. I think it's that since the 1890s, that 3.7 million people have died. In the uh, United States alone. In the United States alone through just the, the use and uh, misuse of an automobile. Yeah. And, uh, and that's of a few and, years ago. So that figure is higher yes. now as deaths have been rising. Yeah. Tired of being tracked online? DuckDuckGo could help. Tracking is a comprehensive program. Trackers lurk nearly everywhere online from websites, emails, and even apps in your phone. That means you need a multi-pronged solution. DuckDuckGo's all-in-one privacy app can be used as an everyday browser with private search, tracking, blocking, encryption, and now email protection built in. It's the free, easy button for online privacy. Download the app today. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. But in my spare time, I travel. I've been to Iran, Iraq, the North Pole, the South Pole, Chernobyl. <laughs> These are my vacations, folks. I've even been to North Korea. That's the scary Korea. It's all in my new travel podcast on the Believe Network called What Am I Doing Here? It's fast, it's funny, and it's factual enough. You'll hear how I was robbed in Rio, kidnapped in Honduras, dangled from a cliff in Pakistan, and chased by a lady with a meat cleaver again in Honduras. I had a lot of problems in Honduras. Each week I visit all the world's hot spots and hell holes so you don't have to. You're welcome. Download and subscribe to What Am I Doing Here? wherever you get your podcasts. Could you draw a, a line for us from these these auto these automobile bigwigs from the 30s to a schmuck like Elon Musk today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's interesting to like look at it in that way, right? Because in the 20s and 30s and 40s, as you're getting this kind of reconstruction of the transportation system of the city, but particularly in the post-war period where there's a lot more effort being put into it, like you have these concerted interests who come together to not only, you know, um, put together kind of public campaigns to advocate for the automobile, but also lobby the government heavily so that, you know, there are new subsidies, there are no new rules, new regulations that 
encourage the use of the automobile and restrict the kind of opposition that can happen to it. Um, and so they remake the transportation system and the way that our cities are designed in order to prioritize their product, even, you know, make their product a necessity for so many people. Um, and that, you know, creates a lot of money, right? Everyone has to buy an automobile. Everyone has to get insurance. Everyone or many people have to move out to the suburbs because that's where all the housing is being built now and, and where kind of the policies are created to encourage people to move. Um, you know, you, you have to buy your oil for the, for the vehicle. You have to get your maintenance from the garage, you know, and then the cycle continues when you buy a new one. Um, so there are a whole load of interests that are benefiting from the fact that you are dependent on this one vehicle, right? And so then I think if you fast forward a few decades or, you know, 50 years, whatever you want to say, um, to, you know, around the present when we have these tech companies proposing their big futures for transportation, and, you know, they would tell us, particularly a decade ago, you know, they were disruptors, they were changing the way that things were designed and put together, right? Um, but then when we look at what they're proposing for transportation, it's really not disrupting very much at all. It's just keeping the existing, you know, domination of the automobile, all the people who are benefiting from that, and then kind of sticking their technologies in the middle of it so they can take their cut as well, you know, along with everyone else who gets their piece. Um, so whether that's changing to electric and you have someone like Elon Musk being one of the kind of leaders of that, um, or whether you have a ride hailing service where, you know, it's really a taxi, but now this tech company is able to take a cut and ha- exert a lot of control over what happens. The kind of fantasies for the autonomous vehicle where you'd have a whole fleet of vehicles controlled by these tech companies. Um, and then, you know, who knows, maybe Google will be able to serve you ads all the time. Um, and then what we're seeing now uh, with... And, and I don't really discuss this in the book so much, but these like features like CarPlay and Android Auto, these like big um, screens within the cars, um, the distract the, the the distraction that that's causing for drivers, and now we increasingly see with companies like Tesla, but now other automakers as well, is kind of microtransactions that are built into the cars, or you know they're pretty big transactions sometimes, where it's not a hardware limitation for you to be able to access the features of the vehicle, but rather a software limitation. And you need to pay more money to unlock it. So those can be things that cost thousands of dollars in a Tesla um, and is already in the car itself, but you need to pay extra in order to access it. Or there was this story just the other day about how BMW is going to start charging for um, for heated seats in the vehicles. The heated seat components will already be there, but you would need to pay a monthly subscription or annual subscription in order to access that feature. And so I think like, you know, we can recognize all the problems with automobility that exist, but I think you can see the tech industry is not solving the problems, but rather ensuring that they can benefit a little bit and and take their cut from the existing system. Yeah, it reminds me of the move from DVDs, right, to completely digital. Yeah. Like, you know, a DVD you own, no one can come in later and remove a scene or, or alter it in any way. And really, you're just renting it from, uh, I'm sorry, you're renting the digital version. You don't actually own that, right? So, yep. like, it seems like they're punishing you for owning things. And that seems to be the same idea with the car, right? Like, you're now being punished on a software level. Yeah. Uh, because they, you don't really they, own, you don't really own the car. Exactly. They know, very much want to be like, you know, to, to turn everything into a rentier service that they can get like an ongoing revenue stream from instead of you actually being able to own something and just, and just have it however long it lasts, you know? Right. Let me ask you about, uh, self-driving cars. Um, sure. Because I, I've, I've talked a lot with different engineers and, uh, the responses always vary, but do you think that 
a level five autonomous self-driving, no human is, is a reality? Or do you think that that's just sort of something that uh, people like Musk or some of the companies are, are pushing as like the future? Yeah, I think it's a fantasy that has been pretty conclusively proved to be not realizable in any realistic sense, at least not for a very long time, when we'll yes. have already have to have dealt with the problems that it proposes to solve, right? Um, you can you can suggest that maybe like there will be a level four autonomous vehicle where it can do a lot of things in a particular geofenced area that has favorable conditions for an autonomous vehicle, and occasionally the driver or passenger or some you know remote driver will have to take over to get around the things that it won't be able to to figure out, and and you know we see that with some of the uh, autonomous proposals like um, there was a story recently about Apple's supposed autonomous vehicle project and it repeated something that we see time and time again where if you put it on a set route that it's used to it can do a really good job but you take it off that route and all of a sudden it keeps handing control back to the backup driver because it doesn't know what's going on right um, and so sure I'm sure that there are going to be like slow incremental progress with these technologies but I don't think we're going to get this big breakthrough as we were sold by people like Sergey Brin or Elon Musk or Travis Cal you know, five or 10 years ago, right? Um, and so I would say, like, when I think about the self-driving car, there are two things that really stand out to me. At the moment when they emerged, we had a real opportunity to start changing things within the transportation system to really deal with the problems that they proposed to solve, whether it's the climate impact of the vehicle, the fact you have to own a car, the traffic on the streets, the human deaths, all these things they proposed to solve but haven't solved because the technology doesn't exist and I'm skeptical it would even solve those problems if it did exist. Um, so we had the opportunity to do that. And the autonomous vehicle provided a distraction so that we kept, you know, relying on the existing system instead of making the investments that were necessary in order to start transitioning away from automobility, dealing with the climate impact, dealing with all these other problems, right? And then the other piece of it is that, you know, the autonomous vehicle is still a car at the end of the day. Um, you know, there are proposals that maybe they would look a little bit different from what a car looks yes. like today, but like largely it's still a car. Um, and so if you think about how we're actually going to solve these problems that were created by the mass adoption of the automobile, I don't think a car that has a computer driver instead of a human driver is ultimately going to be the way that we solve those things. And rather, our focus should be investing as much as possible into making it realistic for people to get out of their cars altogether, whether that's by taking transit or riding a bike or what have you. Um, and that does require thinking you know, on a larger scale about how we build our communities and what we incentivize. And that requires a role not just for tech companies or companies more broadly, but for the state to really step in and start to change these kind of subsidies and regulations that have been put in place over the course of a century to promote the automobile. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Do you want to grow your audience without sacrificing your privacy? then the Stupid Sexy Privacy mini-series is just for you. It's a short, special presentation that will run every Thursday morning right here on Weiwo.tv for the next 23 weeks. In each short episode, we'll teach you how to preserve as much of your privacy as possible while still participating in the creator economy. 
You'll also hear from top privacy and disinformation experts who will teach you how to protect yourself from fascists and weirdos. And who doesn't want that? So make sure you're subscribed to Weiwo.tv where all podcasts can be found and we'll see you every Thursday morning for a special presentation of Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv miniseries. Uh, so one of the things I, I, I just would love to talk to you about is just the environmental impact of this this push for self-driving cars and, and just the way that it, it's not even considered right within the discussion. What 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 did you find in putting together the book that that really was alarming to you on this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when you think about the self-driving car, like obviously one of the pieces that you have to consider is that there is still the need to manufacture all of these personal vehicles. Um, and that requires a particular amount of resources, particularly if we're thinking about electric vehicles and the need to put batteries in all of these vehicles. Now, that's not to say an electric vehicle is worse than a fossil fuel vehicle. In the vast majority of cases, it will be better. Um, but still requires a lot of resources to put it together and more than if you were providing a collective form of transportation that's not oriented around a personal vehicle, right? Um, or, you know, a fleet of autonomous vehicles, however you want to, however you want to put it. Um, but I, you know, I think what you were mentioning is really important because um, I'm also concerned that we're underplaying and downplaying and, you know, not putting the focus that it should be put on, you know, the broader impacts of this when you think about the computation that's required. Um, and the labor piece of it as well. So I would just say on the on the environmental piece, you know, you have to think about how you have computers driving all these cars that's going to have an energy impact in itself and having to power all this. Then all of the data from these cars is going back to data centers where it has to be stored and processed. That's going to be a lot of data. There are, you know, estimates on how much that will be, but it seems like quite a bit, especially if these companies are determined to hold on to all this data as they usually are because they don't usually like to, to delete their big data stores. Um, and so then you have all that processing, but then, you know, there's also the piece of who is taking over the car if it runs into these problems. And then the idea is that for most of these companies, they would rely on remote drivers. And there seems to be an increasing push for those drivers to be in the global south in countries where you can pay them a lot less money. Um, and so then you have that kind of, you know, need to have these virtual drivers constantly connected as well, you know, and what comes with building a whole infrastructure around that for a transportation system. Like, say, if we, we actually did realize this, uh, this kind of future that people like Sergey Brin or Elon Musk talked about, where we're all driving around in these, or we're all being driven around in these autonomous vehicles, um, but they're, they're not perfect level five autonomous vehicles. They need help quite frequently. Um, you know, what does that mean then to have like millions and millions of vehicles on the road that require all of these um, remote drivers to kind of hop in on? Uh, you know, I don't think that that is clearly considered. And then just to kind of build on that, the labor piece of it, what we see with these um, autonomous vehicle projects, which I think is often underplayed, is that a lot of the data that goes into training the systems is labeled by workers who are paid very poorly on these kind of like mechanical Turk micro work platforms. Um, you know, I believe Tesla is known for using Venezuelan workers when the Venezuelan currency kind of dropped off um, and, you know, we're able to pay them like basically nothing in order to label all this data. Um, Uber has, has used these platforms as well. I'm sure the other autonomous vehicle companies, many of them have too. Um, and so this is a way to label data for really cheap, 
you know, not even really thinking about what the broader impact of that is going to be. Um, and then we see increasingly how these kind of um, virtual work, I don't know, interfaces or whatever you want to call them, right. allow yeah. an increase of this. I'll, I'll just provide one example. In Canada, what we're seeing now there's a fast food chain called Freshy. It's like a, uh, it, it provides salads and things like that, right? That's what it does. Um, but since the pandemic, it has started to implement this new system where it's getting rid of its cashiers and replacing them with little screens with workers from Nicaragua who will take your order. And so instead of getting paid 15 or $16 an hour for a cashier, they're paying these workers three seventy five an hour, Canadian dollars. Um, and so it vastly reduces the labor costs there. And so I think that, you know, this is kind of a broader issue here beyond autonomous vehicles, but I'm kind of worried about where this is going and the desire to kind of use these means of having virtual workers in this way um, to start taking over a lot more work and kind of the repercussions for that for workers, but also kind of what the broader repercussions are when we reorient around this kind of way of of having people work and whatnot. And certainly we've seen this in the past with call centers, not saying it's entirely new, but it does seem to be like a, a further step down this road that I'm not comfortable with. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the call centers is a great example, right? Because we know where it's going thanks yeah. to the call center. You can point to that and say, that's the future unless we do something. Uh, one, one point that I want to make real quick was about the data that's being shared back and forth is, is that, you know, there are major privacy implica implications Absolutely. that I think people don't think about. I talked about this in, in the book I wrote about privacy, where, you know, if you take an autonomous car to the same sex shop in Columbus, Ohio, over and over and over again, yeah, like that, that's information you might not want people to know, you might not want your employer to know, but now has been correlated somewhere, probably unsecurely, yeah. right, in a place that's, that's readily accessible that that information can go out there. And then the, on the flip side is that you are also not compensated in any way, shape, or form for all of that data that these companies are making money on. So I just wanted to bring up that point real quick and, and get your thoughts on d getting people compensated for data, which which is something that Jerome Lanier uh, has been pushing for for about five, six years now. And so I would just would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, so I would also just say, like before I get to the compensation part, um, I am I am also concerned about the degree to which all of this data is being collected on us and how that ends up getting used. And you can see the autonomous vehicle as an extension of that with these companies controlling it and, and the data that we're that they're able to collect on our movements. But I would say, you know, this isn't something that just comes from um, the rollout of an, an, an autonomous vehicle system. We can already see this with Uber. They collect the data on where we go. We can see how they've abused that with the, in the past with things like Godview, where they were actually going into people's accounts and seeing where they were going, spying on girlfriends and partners and things like that, but also journalists and you know anyone else who they wanted to step in with. These are Uber files that are being unveiled right now. Um, Mark McGann, who is you know a for the former Uber executive and lobbyist who, or not executive, but uh, Uber lobbyist who um, kind of leaked those um, documents basically said that when he started at the company his first day, he got this call from someone um, and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm on the way to the meeting, I'm, but I'm late. And they were like, oh yeah, we can see, you know, we're looking at you in Godview. And it was like, you know, that was like my first day, my introduction to the company. Not to say that Mark McGann is some great person. He still did a lot of evil stuff, but at least he's released these documents, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's a big concern there. I think we can see it with the smartphones. I think we can see it with the broader kind of push to have digital technologies all over the place. Um, and there's not enough attention on how um, 
you know, that, that allows these companies to see everything that we're doing um, and how there's a big trade-off there that we don't often recognize, but I think a lot of people have been woken up to with um, the recent uh, decision in the United States on abortion rights um, and all of a sudden what that could mean for a lot of people and how these technologies can be used to track if they're seeking abortion services. Um, and so hopefully that kind of does push a bigger conversation here. I would say on the compensation question, it's not one that I'm as interested in personally, um, because I think if ultimately, you know, you were being compensated for your individual data, you wouldn't be actually getting paid very much for it. Um, and so I'm, I'm less concerned with like individual compensation and more concerned with like, how are we using this data? How do we think about how this data is being used? And can we ensure, can we, you know, place regulations or, or whatever to ensure that, you know, data that is not in our interest is not being collected, not being used. Um, and rather that when we think about data, um, as a collective kind of, um, good rather than an individual thing that we're, we're individually producing because the benefit of data is not really so much in our individual data that is, that is being produced, but rather in how our data kind of interacts with all this other data and what it, what it reveals on a, a kind of bigger scale. Um, how we ensure that the data that's being collected is being done so in our interests and not rather against, against our interests, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, let me, I, I think the quote was, a year's worth of Facebook data, and forgive me, people listening, I'll, I'll put the correct info in the show notes, uh, is only worth about $1.87 on an individual. But like, it's not worth a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I'm all about, I'm all about the principle. I just, I really <laughs> want you to, I want them to acknowledge that this was worth something. Yeah. Fair yeah, enough. But that, that's all. Uh, <laughs> so before, before I get to my last question, where, where can we find you? Where can we buy the book? Where can we listen to the show? Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm on Twitter at Paris Marks. If people want to find me there, that would be the main place. Uh, Tech Won't Save Us is on all the podcast platforms, wherever you want to find it. It should be there, uh, hopefully, <laughs> unless these uh, big tech companies are taking me off. <laughs> if you if you search, f- fun, fun little fact, if you search for Tech Won't Save Us on Google, it'll provide you with a suggested search for tech will save us, uh, which is pretty funny. Um, and then, if, you really know, yeah, <laughs> if you, if you want to buy the book road to nowhere, what Silicon Valley gets wrong about the future of transportation, um, you know, any major bookseller would have it, or you can go straight to the publisher, which is Verso books. Sometimes they have uh, some good sales on. Yeah. They're, they're a terrific publisher. Uh, they've put out a lot of really culturally important books. Yeah. I'd say in the past, especially in the past couple of years, um, what, so the, the last question I have for you is what gives you hope? Like, what are the things that you, that you see are the bright, the, the few bright spots <laughs> within this space? Like, what are they and what are, how can people look for them? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think sometimes it can be tough to <laughs> find hope with all yeah. the terrible yep. stuff that's going on, whether it's in the tech industry with the climate crisis, like all of these, you know, the, the, the revocation of, of abortion rights, even, you know, there's so many bad things happening. Um, I would say like my biggest source of hope, um, is probably seeing the way that people are organizing against these things, whether it's workers who are, you know, trying to unionize at these tech companies in order to force the companies to change their ways to tra- treat their workers better, all these sorts of things. I think that's really hopeful, especially after a long period where there hasn't been so much um, labor organizing in the United States, uh, but, you know, broadly as well in the West, you know, unionization is way down in Canada as well, just not as low there because our public sector unionization rates are higher mainly um and 
you know, I, I think that that's a really positive development and I hope that it keeps going as we're seeing all these Starbucks stores unionizing. Hopefully Amazon, a, a wave there continues, Apple stores as well, which is great. Um, and then, and then also, you know, I guess people organizing more generally beyond that as, you know, we're seeing the inability of the political system to respond to major issues like the climate crisis, um, like abortion rights, like all of these, these problems that we're dealing with. Um, I think it will honestly require more people to, you know, just be organized to try to push back against these things. I think that that is really positive and, you know, there's, there's, little room for hope sometimes but at least i that that kind of gives you a piece of it i hope <laughs> yeah no I, and i agree I, I think that the amazon labor union has been yeah something just very exciting and I, I just keep my fingers crossed every day that it keeps growing absolutely um, and also you know the way that they organize their their own union instead of going to like the the older unions not to say that they're all bad or anything like that but it does feel like kind of a, a rejuvenation in a way bringing in new energy which i think is and, and that's focused on like a, a new generation a new way of doing things which is hopefully really positive and helps to to expand that well, that's our show. And uh, our, our apologies to the band. You know, we kind of just ran out of time. That's kind of the uh, that's the nature of things. That's the name of the game. Hey, hey, hey. Vaped Crusaders comes out on the 20th of every month. The 20th. You can't smoke that in here. Oh, wait. What day is it now? Do I look like a fucking calendar to you? Hey, man, I don't need all the attitude and stuff you know i don't i don't need it well i don't need your face your vape or your are those air jordan 3 ogs yeah yes those are 4500 sneakers i know they're pretty sweet yeah they are no wait i don't like you don't make me like you i'm not man i'm just out here i'm just trying to relax dude i'm on to you pal you're trying to do some Jedi mindfuck bullshit, and... <laughs> I don't I don't think that's what it's called. I don't think that's the thing. You want to play mind games with me, motherfucker? All right, let's dance. Make sure to tune in to Vape Crusaders. New episodes are going to drop every month on the 20th, right here on Weibo.tv. Okay, your, your, your middle name is Macho, but uh, I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever Has a Macho Man ever cried? Yeah. Really? Uh-huh. It's okay for Macho Men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm going to cry some more, but... I've soared with the eagles, and I've slithered with the snakes, and I've been everywhere in between. And I'm going to tell you something right now. 
There's one guarantee in life, and that there are no guarantees, yeah. And that understand this. Yeah. Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody said life was easy, so if you get knocked down, take the standing eight count, get back up, and fight again. Did you enjoy today's show? If you did, please take a minute and leave us a review. Yes, we know you're busy and every podcast asks you to do this, but there's a good reason they do. Because every time you leave a review, that review helps more people find and listen to the show. And you know what that means for you? More great episodes of Weiwo.tv. So what are you waiting for? Take out your phone and leave us a review right now before you move on to something else and forget about us. And we'll see you next time, right?